They clutched their throats, tore off their clothes. Some began bleeding from their eyes, ears, noses, and mouths. Their deaths were quick and mysterious. Even with one miraculous survivor and witness, their deaths can't be explained in a way that satisfies. This hiking tragedy puzzled investigators and rescuers and was compared to another deadly hiking mystery, the incident at Dyatlov Pass. How could six young, strong, healthy people die in the middle of summer on a mountain that's relatively low elevation? They died while several other tour groups who were in the immediate area survived. Were their deaths simply an accident or something much worse? Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. It's been a while since we've done a Twisted Travel case, and I've got a doozy of one for you today. The Kamar Daban Range in Russia is beautiful and majestic. It rises high into the sky. It's very popular with tourists and hikers, even in the winter time. The mountain peaks here reach 2,000 to 2,300 meters, or about 7,500 feet. This is about the same elevation as Estes Park or Idaho Springs in Colorado. This mountain range is on the southern shore of Lake Baikal. Interestingly, Lake Baikal is the largest freshwater lake in the entire world. It's ancient and massive. It's so big that by itself it contains 20% of the world's fresh, unfrozen water. It's more than a mile deep at its deepest point and holds more water than all five of North America and Canada's Great Lakes combined. This area was where 41-year-old Ludmilla Korovina called home. She made her living as a very experienced mountaineering guide who had been hiking this area for years. She was known as one of the best leaders in the business. Not only that, but she was well known for her teaching of survival skills. She wanted her hikers to know how to identify plants and forage for food along the way. Her daughter, Natalia, followed in her mother's footsteps and was also a hiking group leader. On August 2, 1993, Ludmilla and her group of six hikers were making final preparations for a long hike into the mountains. They'd been working towards this goal for six months. Their plan was to meet up with Ludmilla's daughter's group after a few days when their paths would cross and then they'd continue on with the group together. Ludmilla's group was composed of three men and three women in addition to herself. The first is Valentina Udachenko. She features prominently in this story and was 17 years old when it took place. She was a tough, fit young lady who grew up in the area. The second was Tatiana Filipenko, who was 24 years old. She worked as a secretary at a teacher's training college. She wasn't new to long-distance hiking and had been on several trips with Ludmilla before. And the last female was Victoria Zelasova, often called Vika. She was 16 years old and was the only one who Ludmilla wasn't sure about having on the trip. Vika had hiked with Ludmilla before in the wintertime, and at that time Vika was moody. She complained a lot and fatigued easily. Ludmilla didn't want to have to deal with that, so she told Vika no at first, but Vika begged her mother to intervene. Vika's mother called Ludmilla to reassure her that Vika wouldn't complain this time and she'd be able to keep up. Ludmilla changed her mind and allowed the girl to come along. The eldest of the three male hikers was Alexander Crisson, better known as Sasha. He was 23 and a college student. He'd met Ludmilla as a teenager and hiked with her since the age of 12. 
He'd fallen in love with the mountains, and as soon as the school year ended, he would rush to the hills, and particularly enjoyed traveling with Ludmilla, who gladly took him under her wing every summer and enjoyed his company. They had a mother-and-son type of relationship. Then there was Dennis Schwakin, who was 19 years old. He was a last-minute addition to the group. Although he was a member of the hiking club and knew Ludmilla well, another boy was supposed to go, but that boy wasn't given permission by his parents. They needed him for farm work. Dennis took his place. And finally, the youngest member of the group, Timur Bapanov, was 15. He grew up in and around the mountains, and his parents encouraged his hiking trips. They excitedly began their trip on August 2nd in hot and sunny weather. Six days later, on August 9th, a man named Alexander piloted his kayak down the Snezhna River. He dipped his paddle into the ice-cold water and propelled himself forward. He and his group had enjoyed the peace and quiet of the river and the nature sounds from the forest. The movement of the water gently rocked his kayak. He glanced back at the rest of the kayakers in the group who seemed to be just as content as he was. He looked forward once more toward a bend in the river, and as he did, something caught his eye. He moved closer to see what it was. It looked like a woman, wet and bedraggled. She turned and saw the kayakers, and when she did, she began screaming and yelling, beckoning them closer. Realizing there must be something seriously wrong, they approached the girl, who ran forward and grabbed hold of one of the kayakers and began sobbing hysterically into her chest. The group saw that the young girl was cold and sick. They covered her in a blanket and took her with them. It was quite a while before they were able to calm her enough to be able to speak. With the calm came a horrifying story, one that hasn't been able to be explained to this day. The young girl was Valentina Udochenko, and she was alone. The other six hikers were left dead in the mountains. Valentina told the following story. Ludmilla was known to push her students hard, and she liked to travel light. This meant she and her group would have the minimum of supplies, but she'd been doing these trips for long enough that she knew what was really needed. Her former students described her as a team builder, the type of person who knew how to rally her students and make them work well together. She was a great leader. She could reveal each student's strengths and help them grow in all aspects of their lives. The total distance of this planned hike would be between 45 and 55 miles, with many pre-planned stops along the way. They left from the small town of Moreno, which borders Lake Baikal. From there, the course would take them up the rocky mountainside to the crest of the Kamar Daban Ridge. It would take a few days, but once at the top, there was a resting place for hikers with a shelter, a fire pit, and plentiful firewood. They would rest there for the night before making their first descent the next day. At the same time, there were several other groups heading the same general direction, but on other paths. These paths are all well-worn and used regularly by several hiking groups. Ludmilla's daughter and her group were nearby and moving toward their targeted meeting place, which was a couple days ahead. After they reached this spot, they would finish the rest of the hike together. But they never met up. As the group began the hike, the weather was warm and typical of the area. The winds were calm and light. Ludmilla had checked the weather and things looked good for the hikers. The only stress was the weight of their backpacks and the rocky terrain. But the group was strong and fit, and they made great time the first day. 
The next day, however, as they gained elevation and left the tree line of the forest, things began to change. The wind shifted direction and began to pick up. Then it began to rain. They covered themselves in their packs and plastic as they hiked, and when they set up their tents that night, it was still very wet. They spent the night in wet tents, and the next day they had to carry their wet, slightly heavier gear. The rain continued all day, and the temperatures continued to drop as the wind continued to pick up. Ludmilla was not one to tolerate complaining, and since she had plans to meet her daughter, the hikers knew she wouldn't want to stop. She taught her students that life wasn't easy, but persevering is the way to get through the hard times. Her students set their discomfort aside and kept walking, even as the wind whipped them, the rain soaked them, and chilled them to the bone. They kept moving in order to keep warm, but their damp clothes couldn't keep the chill away, even at night inside their sleeping bags. By August 4th, in the afternoon, they had reached the Krutoy Pass. This is a treeless alpine zone, completely open to the wind and rain. It was a rocky and barren landscape, with no protection, and worse, the temperature was still dropping. They couldn't build a fire because there was no wood, and even if there was, it would have been wet and very difficult to light. They needed warmer temperatures. Instead of climbing, they began to descend, but the cold wasn't letting up. Ludmilla decided to stop in an area that was still exposed to the elements. The group set up their tents around 4 p.m., and cooked their food on small stoves. The rain was pouring by this time, and worse of all, it was beginning to freeze. They crawled inside their tents to warm up and stay out of the sleet and what was becoming snow. These decisions were made by Ludmilla based on her judgment and expertise, but later there would be questions. A few hundred meters up the mountain was a shelter they could have stayed in, and a few hundred meters down the mountain was a forest where they could have been protected from the wind. The explanation as to why she chose this area is unknown. Some believed she wanted to be sure that she'd be able to meet up with her daughter on time, and that's why she didn't keep climbing. Others believed that her group was too tired and cold to go further, and she just wanted to warm them up as quickly as possible and rest them. During the night of the 4th, the rain turned to wet, heavy snow, and the wind was so strong that one of the cords holding up one tent broke. The occupants had to exit the tent and repair it. Then, at 6 a.m., a tent stake was ripped from the ground, causing one of the tents to partially collapse, and water soaked some of the bedding inside. After a miserable night in the freezing cold, the hikers woke up to a sight they didn't expect in August. Everything was covered in snow and frozen. The snow was still falling, making visibility poor, and landmarks were nearly impossible to find. When Valentina woke up, she said it was about ten in the morning. She left the tent while everyone else was still sleeping, and when she went outside, she saw Ludmilla standing there with her hands on her hips looking concerned. When Ludmilla saw Valentina standing there, she said that the group needed to move down to the tree line today. There they could build a fire to get everyone warmed up. She asked Valentina to go around and wake everybody up and get them moving. It was time to pack up the tents, and they needed to leave as soon as possible. Ludmilla knew the group needed to warm up, and she needed to get them to safety. Valentina noted her surprise, because Ludmilla seemed worried, instead of strong and sure of herself. Maybe she even sounded a little frightened. It took very little time for the group to pack the tents and began moving down the hill. 
They were in seemingly good spirits as they began to descend. After the short walk, they planned to build a fire and have a nice hot breakfast. But this was not to be. As the students began to descend single file down the hill, they were fairly close together. After only 30 meters or 60 feet of movement down the hill, the oldest and the strongest of the men fell over. This was Sasha, the man that Ludmilla had joked that she had adopted as her own son. Ludmilla lifted Sasha to his feet, and when she did, he had a confused look on his face. He took another step, and another, but then he collapsed to the ground. His face changed from confusion to terror. His eyes were wide open, and suddenly he began to bleed out of his ears, and foam came out of his mouth. He fell over again and died. Panic-stricken, Ludmilla tried to find Sasha's pulse. When she pressed her fingers to his neck, she couldn't feel anything. She screamed out that he was dead. No one could believe that Sasha had died so quickly and suddenly. He was fine just seconds ago. Ludmilla commanded that they move down to the forest right away and start a fire. She would stay momentarily with Sasha. The group didn't want to leave her, but she insisted. Almost as soon as the group had turned their backs to Ludmilla, she called them back. They raced back to her, and when they got close, they saw that she had collapsed on top of Sasha. She had died right there without any warning. Valentina was stunned. In disbelief, she turned to look at the rest of the group, and that was when all hell broke loose. As she glanced around at her friends, everyone in the group started to panic. They were screaming. Maybe it was panic, or maybe it was pain or something worse, but no one kept their composure except for Valentina. She tried to help them by begging them to follow her to the forest, but they ignored her, almost as if they couldn't hear her. Dennis ran and hid behind a rock to protect himself from whatever was happening. The girls began to thrash about, then they began clawing at their throats and tearing off their clothes. Valentina grabbed Vika by her hand, but Vika bit her, then crawled into a ball and quit moving. Tatiana began bleeding just like Sasha had, then fell on the ground and began hitting her head on rocks before she died. Timur tried to run, but soon collapsed and died. Dennis was yelling for Valentina. He told her to grab her backpack and run to the forest. He'd meet her there. She turned toward him and noticed that he was bleeding too, but she grabbed her pack and tent and began to run. When she glanced back over her shoulder to see if Dennis was following, she saw that he had collapsed too. She ran as fast as she could down the hill. She kept touching her face to see if she could feel the wet of blood dripping from her face and mouth, but there was none. She couldn't understand why she was alive and they were dead. She didn't know what else to do, so she kept running. Eventually, she entered the canopy of the forest and began to look for a place where she could find shelter to get out of the wind and cold. She found some rocks that formed a small overhang. There was just enough room for Valentina to slide inside. She slid into her sleeping bag and pulled the tent over her body. She felt safe for the moment and forced herself to go to sleep. She yearned to escape the reality of what had just happened. Hours later, she awoke. It was dark, and the storm had worsened. Winds were ripping through the forest, toppling trees. She heard them snapping as they fell all around her. She feared she might be crushed by one of them, but when dawn came, she was still alive. The winds had calmed by then. 
She assessed her situation and realized that she wouldn't be alive for long if she didn't get more supplies. She was miles from anywhere and had no idea if anyone was close by. She needed food and water. She needed to figure out how to get to safety. The things she needed were with her fallen comrades. She had to return to them. She had no other choice. She knew they were dead when she left them, and when she arrived back at her camp, everyone was exactly where they had collapsed. As she approached, no one moved. In some reports I read on this case, it stated that Valentina closed each corpse's eyes. In others, I read that she averted her eyes from the corpses as she searched for what she needed inside their bags. This may be an issue with translation, I'm not sure, but either way, she took what she needed from everybody else's bags. This included a map, a compass, and food. Then she started walking. As darkness approached, she found a radio tower. At the base of this tower was an enclosure that protected Valentina from the elements. She stayed there for the night. The next morning, from her high vantage point, she was able to see a line of poles with wire connecting them. She decided to try to follow the line, which would likely lead her to a village or people, and she would be saved. She followed the wires, believing that any minute she'd get to a village. Ironically, she did arrive in a small village, but no one lived there anymore. It was abandoned and there was nothing there to help her. She wasn't sure what to do next, so she just decided to keep walking. She thought of her mother and how much she would miss Valentina if she didn't come home. Valentina was afraid to leave her mother alone in the world and told herself she had to make it home somehow. She followed the wires to a river nearby, and once she found it, she decided she'd follow the water downstream. She held on to hope that eventually she'd find people. She kept walking, but soon found she couldn't walk along the shoreline because it was too rocky and treacherous and she couldn't wade through the river because the current was too strong and cold. In addition, she had a severe cold with a fever and a hacking cough. She'd stick as close to the river as she could, always moving in the direction of the flowing water, but after two days, she was beginning to feel despair. Although the weather had warmed considerably, her health had deteriorated. She felt weak, and she began to prepare herself mentally for death. She was dirty and tired, but she didn't want to die looking filthy. She decided she would clean herself up in the river. She stripped and climbed into the icy water, bathing herself from head to toe. Then she took clean clothes out of her bag, put them on, and washed her dirty items in her sleeping bag. She hung them on branches to dry and sat to rest, and that is when she finally saw the kayakers. I do have to note here that Valentina allegedly told three versions of her story all slightly different, and that some of the research I read came from second-hand accounts, meaning Valentina told them and they told the media. Valentina herself has kept very quiet for years, preferring not to talk about what happened at all. She did speak to authorities and explain that she was the only living member left of the hiking group that had departed only nine days earlier. After being questioned, she was able to tell them where the bodies could be found, and a rescue was organized. But for some reason, the recovery team didn't reach the bodies for 20 days after the hikers died. When they did, the scene was of pure horror. The rescuers flew in by helicopter, so their first view was from the air. 
they saw clothes and backpacks that were brightly colored. The group lay on a clean slope, 200 to 250 meters below the main ridge. They were also two to 300 meters from the border of the forest. One of the rescuers noted that when they arrived on the site, it was eerily silent. He didn't remember hearing birds singing or see any fly by. The bodies had partially mummified, with their faces frozen in fear. Some of the hikers' clothing had been ripped away, leaving many of them wearing thin clothing not suited for the freezing weather. This matched Valentina's description of them removing their clothing. Three of them were shoeless, and all of them were missing their eyes. Because they were partially mummified, they didn't smell of decomposition. One of the rescuers described that all the men were a purplish-blue color, and their bodies looked swollen. He noted that Ludmilla lay on top of Sasha, just like Valentina had described. The eyes that appeared to be missing can be explained by predators and insects. Insects tend to lay eggs around wounds and natural body openings. These eggs hatch and move into the body often within 24 hours. When the autopsy was done on the victims, it was officially determined that all six died from hypothermia. Some of you may be aware of the phenomenon known as paradoxical undressing. This is when someone who's suffering from hypothermia all of a sudden feels hot and they start taking off their clothes. This could explain some of the undressing that was done. Technically, Ludmilla had died of a heart attack, but that was likely brought on by hypothermia as well. The problem with this cause of death is that bleeding from the eyes, nose, and mouth isn't a sign of hypothermia. In addition, it's extremely doubtful that six people would die from hypothermia within minutes of each other. The strangeness of their death is why this expedition is compared to the mystery at, at Dyatlov Pass. If you haven't listened to that episode already, it's number 15. Essentially, several hikers died in freezing cold weather. It seemed as if they ran from their tents, some without shoes and some had injuries that weren't explainable, just like this story. The difference is we have a witness. But the problem is that this witness, if anything, her statement adds more confusion and certainly doesn't mesh with the idea that six hikers died from the cold within minutes of each other while one walked away completely unharmed. One of the rescuers doesn't believe the official story given in regard to what happened in the mountain. He couldn't believe that the hikers died in weather that was only just below freezing and only for a day. The hikers carried plastic sheets they could wrap up in to keep relatively dry. In addition, they had sleeping bags and tents that would protect them from the elements. When these hikers left for the trip, there's a photo of the group. In it, they're all wearing t-shirts and pants, and one of the girls even has her t-shirt tucked up into her bra. It was really warm. In the last photo the group took, they were all dressed in long sleeves and pants, and they wore the plastic sheeting over their backpacks and heads and shoulders to keep them dry. Rain was an expectation on the hike, so the hikers would have had adequate rain gear. That being said, if they got wet somehow, being wet and cold is miserable, and the combination can draw the warmth and strength out of someone very quickly. These hikers did have several layers of clothing they could wear, and we can't forget that all the other groups who were in the same area and had the same weather conditions, survived. 
Oddly, Valentina was asked to sign a non-disclosure statement, and she has kept pretty quiet about the incident in all the years following her friend's deaths. She moved out of the area very shortly after this incident. She said the memories were too painful, and she's only given one interview. In it, she laid no blame on Ludmilla, who many wanted to blame for the incident. She believed Ludmilla made the best choices she could at the time. There are many theories as to what actually happened on that mountainside. Of course, there is the hypothermia theory. One of the most far-fetched theories are alien abductions, but that certainly doesn't match with what Valentina saw. Other people claim their deaths were caused by infrasound. They believe that the strong wind whipping through the mountains created a sound that can affect the human mind. If the sound is just right, it can cause a person to experience a state of panic and unaccountable horror, and worse, it's called a sound, but oddly, many times we can't even hear it, especially as we get older. But the vibration in our eardrums can cause side effects like fatigue, nausea, vomiting, and worse. Others believe that their deaths could have been caused by a high concentration of ozone, which can damage the lungs. It can cause them to swell massively and rupture blood vessels. I read in one source that another man died in the same way at the same time as Ludmilla's group. It was said that he had the same symptoms, but there was no mention of this anywhere else. The only other thing that the autopsy found was that the hikers were suffering from a protein deficiency. Protein deficiency usually happens when people don't get enough protein in their diet. Symptoms include fatigue and weakness, thinning, breaking hair, brittle nails, and dry skin. Those seem like they're more long-term issues. It is, however, sometimes a sign of being malnourished, but Valentina said the group ate well. They would eat four times a day, and the meals were plentiful and hot, and they had snacks along the way. They would eat things like cereal, milk powder, crackers, stew, carrots and beets, onions, sweets, and chocolate. Valentina believed that they ate about 2,400 calories per person per day, so it's very unlikely that the group would have had signs of starvation. Besides, they'd only been hiking for a few days. Extreme exertion could cause them to be at a caloric deficit, but Valentina didn't feel as if they were pushing that hard, and they had rested in their tents for over 12 hours the night before the hikers died. I think we can rule out starvation, but the protein deficiency is strange. Another theory had to do with food and water. Ludmilla was a forager. It was suggested that perhaps she forged something that made everybody in the group sick. The problem here is that Ludmilla said everyone ate and drank communally. There was no water or food that she didn't partake in. She would have died if they had drank poison water, or if they had consumed poisonous mushrooms, unless she simply consumed less of it. She never reported feeling sick or strange, and she said they all ate canned stew the night before the deaths. The theories abound, including the idea that perhaps there was an isolated pocket of toxic gas that the group walked into, but this seems impossible. They were in an exposed area, not a valley, and besides it was windy as could be. So if this were true, surely Valentina would have died too, unless, of course, she was far enough away from the source. We'll come back to toxic gas in a little bit. Radiation poisoning was also offered as a possible reason for their deaths, but there was no report of radiation in the hikers' bodies, and again, Valentina was fine. 
A more mystical theory exists. Ludmilla was known to dig up a local root, one that was prized for its medicinal properties. According to what I read, it contains the same chemical as Viagra. Valentina said the day before her friends died, the group had collected all the roots they passed the entire day. It was much more than they needed. Locals say the root is sacred, and that if you take more than you need, the spirit of the mountain will punish you. If this were true, surely Valentina would have been punished as well, or maybe letting her go was meant to be a warning. The tale she told certainly scared many people away from the mountain. I have another theory, one I haven't heard anywhere, but it might just fit this scenario. I recently learned that there's something called a cyanide bomb. It has another name in the U.S., and that's M44. This is a device that was designed in the mid-70s and is still used today. These poison bombs are used to kill coyotes, feral dogs, and foxes. It's even been known to kill bears. It's made from four pieces. There's an outer covering that holds a small plastic capsule. The capsule contains sodium cyanide. Sodium cyanide is a white water-soluble powder. This means as soon as it touches water, it becomes reactive. The capsule has a spring-powered injector, and it's designed so that if someone or something pulls on the cap, it explodes upward. The caps are usually baited with a scent that draws animals in. When the cap is pulled, it shoots a dose of sodium cyanide into the air. Often, this is right into a predator's mouth. The sodium cyanide reacts with any liquid it comes into contact with and immediately becomes a poisonous gas. But if the powder lands on skin, it can be absorbed that way as well. In the M44 cyanide bombs, the powder is dyed bright orange. These bombs can shoot the cyanide as high as five feet in the air. What if Sasha saw something on the ground and bent over to pick it up? When he picked it up, he triggered a device designed to poison animals. Perhaps, like the M55 cyanide bombs, it shot orange powder into the air, which would have hit Sasha most directly, but then the powder could have been carried by the wind towards the others who were close by. When Ludmilla and the others turned to pick Sasha up, they may have breathed the gas or got the powder on their skin. Remember, it was snowing and the visibility was poor. Sasha's wet skin and the wet ground would have caused the powder to turn to gas quickly and he'd become the epicenter. They all gathered around him, with Ludmilla closest as she tried to tend to him, checking his pulse. She died second, and the deaths occurred in the order of the people closest to Sasha and the trigger point. The orange powdery residue may have been mistaken for blood in the poor visibility. One of the symptoms of cyanide poisoning is foaming blood coming from the mouth. These devices have been used to kill thousands of animals inhumanely every year, including endangered species and family pets. In Pocatello, Idaho, in March of 2017, a 14-year-old boy named Canyon Mansfield was walking his dog on a hill behind his home when he found an M44. He bent down and accidentally triggered it, thinking it was a sprinkler head that had been covered in something sticky like tar. The device spewed bright orange powder, which seriously injured Canyon and killed his dog right in front of him. Canyon got a little bit of powder in his eye, which began burning immediately. He ran to a patch of snow nearby and started rubbing it into his eyes. Then he heard the sound of his dog snuffling. 
He turned to look and saw that his beloved pet's eyes went glassy and foamy blood ran from its mouth. Canyon sprinted back to his home, shouting for his mother. Luckily, the amount that went into Canyon's eye was not a lethal dose. He was decontaminated by first responders quickly. He had to undergo several toxicity checks and suffered terrible headaches, nausea, and numbness in his arms. Common symptoms of cyanide poisoning are overall weakness, nausea, confusion, headaches, difficulty breathing, seizures, loss of consciousness, and cardiac arrest. It's highly corrosive to eyes and skin, which could explain why the hikers would have clawed at themselves. Difficulty breathing may have caused some of the students to remove any constrictive clothing. A seizure would explain Tatiana's bashing of her head into the ground. Loss of consciousness would explain the collapsing of the hikers, and cardiac arrest was why Ludmilla died. Cyanide works quickly. It's absorbed rapidly, and symptoms begin only a few seconds after exposure, and death usually occurs in less than 30 minutes. I don't know much about poisons, but I'm sure there are other nerve agents that are used to kill unwanted animals. What if something like this is what happened? Many people thought it was odd that it took a month before park rangers and authorities finally got to the bodies. Maybe the reason was simple. They were covering up the fact that they had placed poison bombs in order to kill unwanted wildlife, and it accidentally killed this group of hikers. It would make sense that rangers would place the bombs near trails. That's where they'd want to keep the predators away from in order to keep the tourists coming to the area and doing these hikes. It might also explain why Valentina was asked not to speak of the incident. If this theory was reality, the cyanide would dissipate easily in time. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, if cyanide accidentally spilled in a field, several processes would contribute to its dissipation. First, it would become a gas when it reacted with water, and it would diffuse into the atmosphere and be diluted into the air. Reactions with soil compounds would convert the cyanide into carbon dioxide and ammonia and other nitrogen-containing compounds, so the impact of the pesticidal use of sodium cyanide would be minimal, except to the unsuspecting victim or victims who came in direct contact with it upon its release. The problem with this theory is, of course, there's no proof that it happened. Also, Valentina would have been very lucky not to be poisoned if all the others were. There would have been mechanical parts left over from the spring-like device. Someone would have had to remove those if they were hiding the truth. But who better to hide the truth than the park rangers who were in charge of the body recovery? What do you guys think? Did we just solve this case? The reality is that we probably won't ever know what happened on that mountain. Just like the story of the deaths in Dyatlov Pass, this is a mystery that we all want answers to. I'd love to know what you guys think. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please take a second to rate and review Twisted Travel and True Crime on iTunes, Spotify, or even on our Facebook page. I'll post pictures that go with today's case there, as well as on Instagram and on Patreon. There are links in the show description for all social media, as well as links that will allow you to support this podcast monetarily. There are options for monthly subscriptions, as well as one-time donations. I'd love your support, no matter how it comes. I'm so grateful to everyone who shares this podcast with a friend or online. Thank you so much to Jacques A. for becoming a Patreon, and to 
Andrea for coming on at the highest tier. You guys are the best. I'd also like to thank T. Stilt for rating the podcast five stars. She says, love listening to Sandy telling these stories. One of my favorite podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank Dropping the Dime on True Crime, who was so kind to write us a nice review on Facebook. Those girls are great. Thank you all so much. And to all of you, I wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds, especially mountain hikes. Take care.